You know you are capable of more because you have a burning desire to get the absolute most out of life. To starve your fears, to follow your dreams, and to realize your true potential. And we are going to do that together. This is The Andy Stork Show. Let's go. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I'm really excited that you're joining me today. I've got a great interview for you. And you know, normally, most of the time, I'm interviewing leaders, thought leaders from the HR and talent development space. But every now and then, I get to talk to a business leader, an executive, if you, if you will, uh, who's not necessarily from an HR background, but who cares deeply about developing people. I've had a couple CEOs on recently, and today I'm sharing an interview with Joel Peterson, who is the 12-year chairman of JetBlue Airways, retiring in May 2020. He's the former chairman of the Hoover Institution and the founding partner of Peterson Partners, a Salt Lake City-based investment management firm with a billion dollars under management. Since 1992, Peterson has been on the faculty at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University, teaching courses in real estate investment, entrepreneurship, and leadership. He's been called the Mr. Rogers of Silicon Valley and has appeared on Fox, CNN, all kinds of different publications and media, and now this podcast, of course. And he has a new book out called Entrepreneur Leadership, The Art of Launching New Ventures, Inspiring Others, and Running Stuff. Um, that's again by Joel Peterson, who was a 12-year chairman of JetBlue Airways, retiring very recently. And in this interview, we talk about a whole bunch of different topics, uh, mostly from his book. We talk about the importance, what great leadership looks like, the importance of trust. We talk about the importance of having a mission. We talk about strategy alignment and why that's important. Uh, we talk about how to build a great team, how to engage a team, how to develop a team, and how to deliver results, among other things. I think that if you're in talent development, if you are in a leadership position at all, you're going to enjoy this interview. And uh, I want to let you know that I'm building some new things and uh, going on some entrepreneurial ventures of my own. Uh, and you can find out more about that as well as get any of our free resources anytime uh, by going over to our website, talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. And I also created a free resource recently, a little while back, to help those in talent development who are pivoting during uh, difficult times, as many of us have been. And uh, you can get that at actually a different site, ownyourcareerownyourlife.com slash development. That's ownyourcareerownyourlife.com slash development to get a short, free five-video mini-series, video series I created on pivoting together in talent development. Um, we all have a lot of things going on. I've been hosting virtual roundtables, uh, talking to a lot of leaders in talent development, and um, finding out what's going on. And I want to just share some of that back with people. So created that resource. Uh, it's a couple months old now, but still as relevant as ever. And I'd love for you to check that out. Ownyourcareerownyourlife.com slash talent development. And now without further ado, here is my interview with Joel Peterson. All right. I am joined now by Joel Peterson, who is the 12-year chairman of JetBlue Airways and author of the new book, Entrepreneurial Leadership. Joel, welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Andy. Yeah, really great to have you on. I was just looking through notes about your book and all the things that you've done in your career, uh, all the leadership positions, and of course, teaching at Stanford for many years. Really impressive. You know, for people that don't know you, maybe we can just start with a quick intro, who you are, what you do, and a little bit of your background would be great. 
Sure. So I grew up in the Midwest, born in Iowa, raised in Michigan, and went to public schools and then uh, ended up uh, after graduating from business school, going to work for a developer by the name of Trammell Crow. And uh, I was assigned France and I spent a couple of years in France became the treasurer of the company, then the chief financial officer, ultimately the managing partner, after which I formed my own private equity venture and real estate firms, and then began uh, teaching at Stanford. And along the way, uh, became chairman of JetBlue and served on about 36 different boards. So I always tell people I can't keep a job, so I always have several. I was the original guy in the gig economy, I guess. The original guy in the gig economy. I like it. And uh, I like you just throw in there along the way, I became chairman of JetBlue Airways. How did that come about? Well, I was one of the original investors. They realized that they had a bet the company deal that they had to do in building a terminal at JFK. And this would be almost a billion dollar project. And they looked around the board and nobody had ever built a building. So uh, one of the board members said, gosh, the guy who used to teach the real estate course at Stanford that I took was the CEO at a big real estate development. I wonder if he'd serve on the board. So I ended up serving on the board, building the building, getting it in on time and under budget. And uh, one thing led to another and pretty soon I was chairman. Wow, that's impressive. I didn't know any construction projects ever came in on time or under budget. That's pretty good. Yeah, particularly in New York. Yeah, in New York and in the airport. You know, maybe they need to hire you to, to oversee what's going on at LaGuardia right now. But, well, uh, in, in point of truth, we had a wonderful guy who's actually building the LaGuardia airport now. Rich uh, Smythe is his name. Fantastic guy. Really very competent. And I'd trust him to do anything. But he, he really deserves all the credit. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and really set things off to be, you know, JetBlue became a pretty strong brand in the United States for many years. And you served as chairman for 12 years. What does that mean? Like, what, is that, what did that usually entail for you on an annual quarterly basis? Well, uh, you're kind of in charge of running board meetings. You're the lead of the independent directors. You work with the CEO and the management team. Uh, typically, you'll have uh, four two-day board and committee meetings a year and one two-day off-site a year. And then I used to talk with the CEO uh, at one point every single Saturday and then later on uh, every other Saturday and then finally once a month just to kind of check in for an hour, go over everything. And so really is derivative of having a great CEO. And that's actually, if you think about it, that is the number one job of a board is to ensure that you've got a great CEO in place. Yeah. So we, we were fortunate at JetBlue. We had three terrific CEOs. Oh, definitely. So I'm curious, you know, with all this experience working in the airline industry or, or overseeing it over the last few years, uh, you know, <laughs> as we record this in June of 2020, uh, you know, we're still kind of in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic and lockdown, which has hit the travel and airline industry especially hard. What has that been like in the airline industry to try to kind of keep things going while people aren't traveling and, and figure out, and there's a lot of planning that goes into routes and things like that, figure out when people are going to be flying more. Well, you can't really figure it out. It's one of those kinds of things that uh, there are just too many variables. So what we do is we run a different, a bunch of different scenarios. And so you've heard of the different recovery plans. There's a V-shaped recovery, a W-shaped recovery, a U-shaped recovery, an L-shaped recovery. And so we run scenarios for all of them. But your job uh, is really to survive, you know, and that's job one. And that means that you've got to have cash. And um, that means extending that uh, liquidity runway by deferring capital expenditures, reducing operating costs, 
deferring things, getting out of hobbies, doing everything that you can because you've got to survive in the short term for there to be a long term. Yeah. So that's job one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you go into survival mode, figuring out who's essential and, and who's not. Um, you said getting out of hobbies. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what that means? You know, any business that is around for very long picks up lint. You know, you try things, you do, and pretty soon you have a committee that's set up to do this, that, or the other. I've learned over many, many years of serving in many, many senior positions to sunset every committee. Otherwise, they get a life of their own, and pretty soon there's overhead, and, you know, people get invested in them. And I I think you just sunset everything. This idea of zero-based budgeting is a powerful idea. I wish we could get the government to do it. Uh, I wish everyone would do it because it really forces you to to kind of go to zero, reimagine your business every year Mm -hmm. or every two years and figure out what's essential and you become much more efficient. And uh, an event like this one really forces everybody to do this. There's nobody who can go back in and just be sort of a presider as if nothing had changed. If you work in talent development, you know that your job has become more important than ever. The problem is there's so much uncertainty and noise out in the business world and things are changing so fast, it's hard to know where to go and what tools and resources to use to solve your problems. That's why I recently launched the Talent Development Think Tank community as a central and safe place to access information, ask questions, and talk with other L&D professionals like you so that you can achieve your goals and accelerate your career. Join today to get instant access to our online platform and community of ambitious, helpful talent development professionals who understand your world and can help you solve your problems. Right now, I'm offering 25% off the subscription price to podcast listeners. Just go to talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT for 25% off. That's talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT. Thanks, and on to the episode. Yeah, it's interesting. And and obviously, there are a lot of people out there, you know, suffering, and we don't wish this on anybody. But it's interesting how when things come along like this, it's almost needed sometimes to do a little bit of a reset in many industries. There's so much um, extra fluff going on the lint, as you called it. In the industry I work in talent development, there have been people for many years saying, we need to do more stuff virtually, and they keep putting it off. And then COVID hit. And all of a sudden, nobody is flying or getting together for in person training. And all of a sudden, wow, we've been able to convert everything to virtual. Now we're running all these programs over Zoom. And, you know, a lot of them are going very well. And so yeah. they're saying, wow, you know, where has this been? Well, it's interesting. I, uh, I ended up teaching a course this uh, spring at Stanford Business School to second year students over Zoom. Mm-hmm. And it was far better than I thought it would be. I, I just couldn't have imagined that it would be this good. On the other hand, it was far worse than actually being there in the classroom with yeah. them. So I I think there's a kind of a pent up demand in terms of travel, classroom, uh, training, the things that you do that will actually see it come back. It may not come back to where it was and maybe not immediately, but I think people do like to be with each other. There's a lot that goes on at the water cooler. It just doesn't happen over the TV screen. Yeah, I'm a big, you know, extrovert networker. And I think people do really want to be together. Uh, And I was just having this conversation right before this interview with my mentor and coach because I host a conference in the talent development space. We had it in January. I'm starting to think about, can we host this conference again next January? Will people be ready to fly and get together? And there are plenty of things we can do to network and get to know each other. You and I are face-to-face on Zoom right now, but there's no replacement to getting people together in person, shaking hands, hugging, talking, 
you know, having a beer or a cocktail or tea or whatever it is and, and just chatting, getting to know each other. So I do hope we'll be able to do that again for people very soon. Well, don't you find that a lot of the real business goes on outside the meeting? Oh, yeah. I mean, I just find that it's walking someplace else or having a meal together or, you know, any, any of those kinds of things really just the, the real connections happen there. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So tell me about the, the book. You know, why did you decide to write this book and, and why now? Well, I, as I mentioned to you uh, in an earlier moment, I've, I've been teaching entrepreneurship for almost 30 years at Stanford. And I've been an entrepreneur for about 60, well, yeah, a little over 60 years. I just, I'm, I'm getting old, obviously, when I give you those kinds of numbers. And I just figured I ought to codify some of this stuff. I start the book with a near fatal accident that my wife had where she was not careful on a mountain. She didn't do any of the things she knew she should do. And she ended up being stranded on the mountain. And I thought, you know, that's a great metaphor for what we teach students in school. We, t- we teach them all these things and then they go out and they run into trouble. And so I thought, I'm going to get this down in the form of a checklist. I kind of thought of, of airline pilots, you know, um, they have checklists. So a pilot may be flying for 25 or 30 years and he'll get in the cockpit and he'll go over the checklist. He could probably do it from memory, but he goes over that checklist. So what I tried to do is create a series of checklists for mindsets and things to think about so that you don't get stranded alone on the mountain. And that, that's kind of the idea. And that's phenomenal. And I'm sure, and I know there's a lot of wisdom that you have to share in there. And I think we do need more of these checklists. I need them as well, even for things I've been doing for a while, like recording a podcast. I still make mistakes all the time. I've been, I've recorded over 300 or 400 of these. Why entrepreneurial leadership? Why is that the topic? I know you've been involved in both, but why does the world need entrepreneurial leadership or more entrepreneurial leadership? Well, it needs it now more than ever. We're not going to need presiders or administrators or pure managers. These are all important ways that people lead organizations, but I think we're going to need the entrepreneurial leader. And entrepreneurial leaders don't just light fires. The pure entrepreneur innovates, lights fires, but many times the fires go out and they don't spread and become wildfires. So the idea of the entrepreneurial leader is they know how to make these fires spread and they know how to administrate, which means that they can set policy. They know how to manage complexity they know how to preside over an existing institution, and they understand the politics, they understand power. So all of these are important elements of it, and really only the entrepreneurial leader has all what I call five tools so they can build an enduring enterprise. So the idea is to differentiate between the entrepreneur and the entrepreneurial leader. Okay, and so the entrepreneurial leader can still thrive in a corporate environment, a large company, uh, but with a little bit more of that entrepreneurial mindset and with the tools that you lay out in the book. Yes. In fact, some people who've reviewed it have said they were really surprised to see me refer to Alan Mulally, who, of course, ran Boeing and Ford, mm-hmm. as well as Stan McChrystal, who was a four-star general that ran Joint Special Operations Command, the SEALs, Rangers, Force Recon Marines, etc. And they were surprised that I'd listed them as entrepreneurial leaders because they ran big almost bureaucratic organizations, but they had the spirit of innovation. They could manage complexity. They understood politics. They were able to do all of these things that created durability. And that's really the essence of the entrepreneurial leader. Yeah. Well, let's get into that essence and and those points. You know, what does a great entrepreneurial leader look like? What are those, those points that you lay out? I, I guess the simplest thing would be to say, you know, I think there are four foundational elements 
that the entrepreneurial leader does. The first thing is they establish trust. And to have trust, have high trust, you have to do two things. One is you have to become trustworthy yourself, which means you deliver on promises and you're predictable so that people can make decisions in your wake. Uh, and then the second thing is you ensure that the organization has a high trust culture. And, um, and there are ways to be intentional about building trust, uh, engineering trust within an organization. But trust is the most valuable currency that an organization has. So that's the first thing that you have to do. The second thing is that you have to have clarity around the mission. You know, what is it you're trying to do? What does winning look like? Figuring that out and articulating that in a way that everyone understands and has a line of sight from their job to that mission means you don't have to motivate them. They're self-motivated. They want that mission. The third thing is the one that you spend your life on, Andy, and that is assembling a great team. You know, how do you source great people? How do you interview them? How do you do due diligence on them? How do you onboard them? How do you coach them? How do you demote them, promote them, and fire them if you need to? So, you know, that putting the team together is the third foundational element. And the fourth one is the execution toolkit. And so I list 10 things that every entrepreneurial leader runs into with checklists uh, against which they can check their mindset, their decision-making. And so those are the four foundational elements. Yeah. And those are all so critical. And I'm just nodding my head as I listen to all of those. Uh, I want to go back to trust. It's one of those things that's obvious. Anyone would nod their head and said, yeah, of course we need trust. And yet there are so many leaders out there who are not trusted by their people, right? How do we build trust in leadership? What are the most important things leaders should be thinking about or organizations should be thinking about? for their leaders to build trust. Yeah, I mean, it's really critical. It starts with the integrity of the leader, which means there's no gap between what you say and what you do. Your personal life and your professional life aren't at conflict, aren't at odds with each other. So, uh, you know, it starts there and then it moves to communicating lavishly, clearly, openly, transparently, in bad times as well as good, to creating a mission together that everybody owns, to uh, encouraging respectful conflict you know, and dealing with that, to fixing betrayal, to, I mean, there, there are these ways to think about what violates trust and making sure that you don't do that. And it's this sensitive thing. I've always said that it's fragile, but it's powerful. You know, you can ruin it in a minute, but when it's there, it, you, everything goes faster, quicker, cheaper, and is more flexible. Yeah. And whether you're trying to get clients as an entrepreneur or motivate a team, uh, trust is so important. It's so critical. And if you don't have that trust, you ruin that trust. It's going to hold you back, right? People are not going to want to follow you. One of the factors you mentioned in there was integrity. You talk about integrity and leadership. What does that mean to you? I know you break that down in the book as well. Yeah. So I think a lot of people think of integrity as kind of a virtue. Mm -hmm. And uh, where there is that element of it, I don't think of it that way. I think of it more like structural integrity that there's syncing up of what you say and what you do. There's no gap between them because in effect, integrity means people can rely on you, that you'll deliver on promises and that's why you trust them. And if, you, if somebody doesn't have integrity, people are smart. They'll figure it out very quickly. And so to me, it's not just this fuzzy feel good word that people like to include in their mission statements. It's really measurable. And, uh, and it's something that um, every leader has to have on their list to make sure that they're behaving with integrity. Yeah. And uh, 
like you said, it's essentially you mentioned it's measurable, right? Because you can, it's observable, right? You can see people that don't follow through on the things that they say they're going to do. And um, eventually that erodes the trust you have for them, their reputation. You don't want to work with them anymore. You mentioned mission statements a couple times. And, you know, every organization has one of these. Most of them, it feels like they just kind of throw it up on the wall and nobody really pays much attention to it. Can you talk about the importance of having a great mission statement and as a leader, as an organization, and why that's important and, and important to get people to really buy into it? Well, I make a differentiation between a mission and a mission statement. And the reason I do that is the very one that you just mentioned, is everybody has kind of a generic mission statement that they frame, hang on the board wall, and then it creates cynicism in the organization. Uh, so mission statements uh, that are generated by third parties or by a, from a corner office don't really work. Having a mission, though, where you really decide, what do we care about? The way that I like to do that is have the whole team say, what are the five words we would like our brand to represent? And debate them, refine them, wordsmith it, you know, and really figure out until you finally come to the five words and a statement around those, you say, we're excited about this. We can differentiate ourselves in the market. This is the peak we're going to climb. And if it's not clear which peak you're going to climb, what you find is management teams climbing six different peaks. They're not belayed. They don't help each other to the summit. And it's a mess. So having really a lot of clarity around this is what winning is. Really, this is, this is our mission. You know? And then the job of the leader is really just to help remove obstacles, encourage people, get resources to them, and really help people achieve what they actually want to achieve themselves, but might not be able to do without the, the uh, leadership. Yeah, it's critical. And um, you know, one of the other things I was going to ask you about that lines up with that is the importance of alignment when you are executing on a strategy. So you mentioned execution earlier. I worked for a strategy execution firm for many years and still work with clients on that. And one of the biggest challenges I find or problems with organizations or reason why great strategies fail is always in execution. And it's usually because people are not aligned. They don't all, they're not all clear on the same strategy, right? They're working on different things and it causes all kinds of problems because people are going in different directions. So I if you can talk a little bit about the importance of alignment and how maybe you use that or see other great organizations getting people aligned. Yeah, to me, Andy, it's the number one thing that you have to do. It's, it's the key map. I find if I go into an organization and I find alignment between values, objectives, strategy, tactics, and the things they measure, if they're all in alignment, the organization almost manages itself. If they're out of alignment, it's really difficult to, to get there. I, I ran a company once where we were telling people to stop building buildings. You know, there were, the markets were overbuilt, and yet we were paying them based on building buildings. Mm. And there was not alignment between what we were saying our strategy was and what we were paying people to do. And it caused all kinds of discontinuities, stress, conflict, and ultimately blew the place apart. This episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat is sponsored by Advantage Performance Group. Advantage is the first place to call when you need leaders to lead, sellers to sell, and your business to flourish. We specialize in connecting companies with exceptional learning solutions to help them turn strategy into action and get their people doing the best work of their lives. We're also providing tons of great content on a weekly basis. In fact, we recently launched a great webinar series that has been going on weekly with content such as creating a culture of multipliers, gender equity, Liz Weissman's webinar on helping rid the world of bad bosses, 
We have a new webinar from Brent Snow on decision-making. We have a webinar on multipliers and how to use multipliers during troubled times, calming the storm. We have a webinar from our partner, Julie Winkle Giulioni on developing in place how to continue your growth during remote working. And a webinar from Paul Middleton on the secret sauce for learning in the flow of work, plus many more. Just head to our website at advantageperformance.com. Click on free resources and you'll find the link to webinars and all of our other insights and resources there. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. So what's one step? I mean, there's a lot of things that need to be done, but you go into an organization and you see that there is some misalignment. How do you get people aligned to one strategy? Well, I always start with what's our objective? What is winning? Let's really define what winning looks like. What would it look like if we won? Well, you define it and you say, well, it would happen in this period of time. It would have the following measures, et cetera. Well, what's our strategy for getting there? So you move then to the strategy. We're going to go after the retail market or we're going to go after however you're going to do it. And then you say, who's going to do what by when, with what budget, what are the timeframes, what are the deliverables? And then, and then you figure out what, what is your dashboard? What are you going to measure? And I think when you go through it in kind of a methodical way, like that. People say, well, I don't agree that that's what we should measure. Well, people will easily compromise on the measures where they won't compromise are on values. You know, so if you have a conflict over values, people don't compromise and you're better off splitting up. Then, so I want to find those value because values are really just priorities. The people don't have the same priorities. They will not be able to work together. They will not compromise on them and you'll have a mess. So I always say, let's get together, starting with objectives, work our way all the way down through what we measure, and then look back up to our values. And if we're not in agreement on that, then let's make some personnel changes. Yeah, absolutely. And I like how you you make a differentiation there because there may be a disagreement on the strategy and we can come together on that and compromise and figure out where's the right way to go. Or, you know, the, the one, the decision maker makes the decision and everybody commits, whatever it may be. But if you have a disagreement on values, then you're probably not going to change those. You're better off breaking apart, either a partnership breaking up or someone leaving an organization saying, you know, this company is great, but it just doesn't line up with my values. Or this employee is really smart, but their values don't line up with our values and maybe we need to let them go. Yeah. It's one of the hardest decisions, but I've just learned over 50 years of doing this that you never do it soon enough. As soon as you figure that out, it's time to split. Yeah. I actually had an experience uh, last year where I was, I formed a partnership very briefly with a good friend uh, and we were planning on running an event together. And we quickly found out over a few weeks and several phone calls that our values on how we wanted to do things did not align at all. And though we spoke about the things we wanted to achieve were similar, uh, but how we wanted to approach it was just far off. And, and finally, we decided, you know what? This is not going to work. It's going to cause, it's going to end our friendship if we try to push this through. And so we ended it and we're still very good friends, both doing great things. But we just realized that our values didn't align for that particular enterprise. Congratulations, because that doesn't happen. That often. I don't know a lot of people who, who kind of force it through and think somehow right. they can come together. Yeah. A lot of times our priorities, we learned at our mother's knees and they seem like apple pie and religion mm. and whatever. And we're just not going to change them. Yeah. And there's no point in having that grief in your life. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask you about, you write in your book about the importance of a personal brand and a personal life. And I am big on the topic of personal brand. Uh, I give talks on it, actually wrote about it in the book that I'm working on right now as well. Uh, And it's very popular in the entrepreneurial space 
not as much in the corporate space. So let's start with personal brand. Why do you think that, that leaders need to be thinking about building their personal brand? Well, it kind of gets back to the issue of trust. You know, your brand is your promise. It's mm. what the market can count on you to do. And uh, you want that to be clear. You want it to be understood. You want to never violate it. And the other thing is the people who are working under you or taking direction from you, if they really understand your brand, they're completely confident in making decisions for you. You're not going to be second guessing them because they understand your brand. They're going to behave consistent with your brand. So you're, you end up making a bunch of 51-49 decisions and not a bunch of 70-30 decisions. So it extends your reach empowers them, makes for a happier organization. So this idea of having a really clear, solid promise to the marketplace, a brand, a personal brand, uh, really extends you in powerful ways. Yeah, I, I like to think of it as uh, your reputation as well. Uh, I gave a talk on it sure. earlier today, virtually to a group, and started talking about personal brand. And saying that it is your reputation, and you have one, whether you are intentional about creating it or not. So you might as well spend some time, you know, creating an authentic brand and reputation that you want people to have of you, which means, you know, being generous, being helpful, whatever it may be, hardworking, whatever you want that brand to be, but being more intentional about it instead of just leaving it up to chance. Exactly. I, I was teaching a class, an executive ed class at Stanford one year, and I was talking about culture and the power of culture. And I had a, you know, an experienced old executive guy who was kind of crabby. And he looked at me and he says, we don't need no stinking culture. And I said, that's exactly the culture you've got then. Because <laughs> you'll have a culture and it'll be a stinking one. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The same with brand. Classic case. And what about you? You write about the importance of having a personal life as well, which I know is, you know, it's popular to say, but very difficult for a lot of corporate executives. Yeah, well, it's your safe place. It's where you go to recreate, to refuel. And I think people who don't have that end up making dangerous decisions. They're stressed out. They're making decisions based on the moment. Whereas people who tend to be grounded in a personal life with people who love them no matter what, just make more predictable, more thoughtful, more all things considered decisions. So I, I really encourage everybody I work with to make sure they don't violate these personal spaces. I use the example of juggling with uh, my students and say, you know, you'll be juggling professional balls and family balls and the family ones are glass and the professional ones are rubber. The mm. rubber ones will bounce, the glass ones will shatter mm. and you may not be ever are able to put them back together again, and it will impact your life forever. Yeah. So make sure that you don't drop the glass balls. And I think you won't if you set some boundaries, you know, and just say, I'm going to preserve this area. You won't drop the glass balls and everything will work better forever and well, for everyone. I'm big on that as well. Can you give an example of how you've done that or, or stuck with the boundary or, or where you've protected some of your personal life over the years? Yeah, I remember one of the first, I've told this story a number of times, uh, but Trammell Crow, who is the first fellow I worked with, who was a well-known real estate developer, one of the pioneers in the spec development space, I had his name on the door and he called me when I was first out of business school and just said, it was a Sunday afternoon and he said, could you come down to the office? I want to work on a project with you. And I was, I was brand new and I thought, my gosh, this guy's name's on the door. He's mm -hmm. calling me a young, just uh, graduated MBA. Yeah. I need to go. And then I remembered I've been working long hours. I've reserved Sunday afternoons for my wife. I don't think we had any kids then. And so I just said, Trammell, I'm sorry. I, I'll come down as early as you want and stay as late as you want on Monday, but I've reserved Sundays for my family. 
And that was the last time he ever asked me. And wow. I went on to become the CFO and then the managing partner of the company. So it didn't kill my career. In fact, I think he appreciated that I had clarity around the boundaries in my life. Right. Yeah. Probably more respect for you that you, you stood up for those boundaries instead of just letting them walk all over you. That's fantastic. Great example. I hope other people take inspiration from that and, and set those boundaries. I try to do the same thing, having dinner with my family every night and, and taking off the weekends. Speaking of teams, you talk a lot about creating, forming, developing a great team. And um, I wonder if you can talk about some elements of how to put a great team in place and then how to keep a team engaged and productive so that they are operating really effectively. Because a lot of us are out there either working in teams or trying to put teams together. Uh, and it's always a, a, a challenging situation. Yeah, I'm glad you started with putting one together. Right. I think that the, really the most critical thing is sourcing great people. And the issue is where do you find great people? And I think there are a lot of ways to do it. We have more access to people now than we probably ever have from different places. But I think people who think about diversity actually have a better shot than those who are kind of wedded to the idea of hiring themselves. You know, it's, it's always comfortable. It's the easiest way to get a team feeling like they're together early on if they all went to the, have the same alma mater, the same sports interests, the same gender, the same everything. Uh, it's harder and takes longer to put together the team that has uh, diversity in it. But you get different optics. You get a different way to see the truth. And it, it allows you to triangulate. You get a better sense of things. And so that takes longer and you have to be more careful and you have to have more ways to source and you have to be thoughtful in how you onboard them. You have to do more due diligence. I think you have to do more coaching. It's a lot more work, but in the end, you get a much, much stronger, more capable team. And I think it really is the most important thing. Business is a team sport. Yeah, absolutely. The team is critical. Finding the right people. And I'm glad you mentioned diversity and uh, not hiring people that are just the same as you, because you're right. Most people for a long time went out there and said, let me just find someone that looks like me or, or has the same degree, same school, whatever. It's just easy. It's comfortable, right? But it doesn't bring any diversity. And for a long time, organizations all talked about culture fit. Hire someone for a culture fit, right? And now I'm seeing a lot of pushback on that. And the progressive companies talking about saying, no, it's culture addition. Who can you hire that would be a better addition to your team, better addition to your culture, to your organization? Um, and it sounds like you were, you're saying that teams and, and leaders need to be looking for those additions, especially if they come from a diverse background, they bring a different set of experiences rather than someone who just fits the mold. Yeah, let me use the example I've used in a number of situations, uh, which I think probably best describes the way to think about this problem. If you think about an orchestra, you would hate to have an orchestra where everybody played the oboe. Mm. It would be painful to listen mm. to. You know, everybody's the same. It's a bunch of higher me's. Everybody's the noblest. Uh, on the other hand, you would hate to have an orchestra where everybody were playing from a different piece of music. It would be a cacophony of sound that would be also unlistenable. So I think you want to have the different tempers. You want people playing different instruments, these different optics, but they have to share values. You know, if everybody has a different set of values and say, we're so different that we can't get on the same page, You've not got a team then. You have a, have a mob. You have, you have a real mess. So I think that's the way to think about that whole issue. That's fantastic. And uh, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion are a hot topic these days. And I think we've found over the years too that you can't just have diversity 
we've got to be able to let people speak up, be themselves in organizations as well. So you can really hear their ideas if you want to innovate and you want to get further. So anything you would add on the topic of inclusion and making sure that once you get those people in the door, that they are able to be heard. Yeah. I mean, I think the main thing, I mean, one of the critical things in a great organization, a high trust organization, is that it's a listening organization and it doesn't punish disagreement. Uh, in fact, disagreement is what makes things interesting. It's how you find the best idea. And they, they're committed to the best idea wins. And the best idea winning doesn't mean the most powerful person winning. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you, as a leader, you really have to be committed to the best idea winning and to encouraging discussion and disagreement. One of the ways that I used to do that was when somebody would bring me with a conclusion, I would say, what else did you consider when you came up with this conclusion? The first time you ask that, they don't have anything to say. So, well, yeah. this is the right answer. You know, what do you mean? What else did I consider? I, this is the right answer, boss. Right. But once you've asked it once, the next time they come and say, you know, here are the three things I thought of. This, these had this downside. So you, you sort of develop the sense of we debate, we look at different things. That's a very healthy way. That's a high trust organization's way of dealing with issues. I love that. Yeah. You want to create help debate and listen to different perspectives. So we talk about putting a team in place. Uh, a lot of my listeners are in talent development and thinking about how can we best develop our people, give them the tools uh, and skills to be really successful in their roles, successful as leaders in their organizations. So what has been your approach to developing talent? And do you think organizations invest enough in that? That's a great question. And I think talent sometimes boils down to sort of HR purchases of courses and things like that. I've been on the board at Franklin Covey for almost 30 years now. So I, I understand something of that business. And I think there's addition there. But I actually think that the best talent, talent development often comes from uh, within the organization, debating, talking about things. Uh, I, I've taught by the Socratic method for, again, almost 30 years. And I think there's something about having a case, presenting it to people, having them debate it, learning from each other. There's something really healthy that goes on when that, when that happens. And so I'm a big believer in that as, as part, of the, part of the equation. If you're looking for a place to connect with colleagues and peers from your industry and find out what other people in talent development are working on, you need to check out the brand new Talent Development Think Tank membership community. Inside, we have members from companies all over the world who are working on all different things in talent development and sharing what's been working, what's been not working, and answering each other's questions so we can all get our jobs done more effectively and be more successful in our careers. If you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you. Just head on over to tdtt.us slash community, and you can use code HOTSEAT for 25% off your subscription. That's tdtt.us slash community and use code HOTSEAT for a limited time for 25% off your subscription. If you have any questions, reach out to me and let me know and we'll see you there. What's your approach or thought process towards just raising engagement? People keeping, you've got your great team. How do you keep them engaged? What sort of things should, we be, should leaders be thinking about for that? Well, to me, it goes back first to this idea, do we share a common mission? You know, if we, if we all know what winning is, people love to win, by the way. And so if you can say, we all win when this happens, for some people, it's a financial win. For others, it's a reputational win. Uh, for others, it's kind of the spirit of winning. But people love to win. So getting everybody on that uh, page 
is really important. And you'd be amazed at how many companies, if you ask executives, you get 50 different answers in, as to what winning is. So I think getting everyone on the same page is, is really the number one thing that, that really brings people together. That's critical, right? And when you've got a common mission, common purpose, everybody can get excited about it and they know why they're being asked to do certain things. Then there's a lot more motivation versus just being told to do things and they have no idea why. Yeah, this idea of line of sight from your job to the objective is really important. You know, um, there's this old story about the guy that uh, Kennedy uh, interviewed down at uh, what was then, I think, Cape Canaveral. He asked him what he was doing. He was a janitor. And, um, you know, <laughs> and uh, the guy didn't say, I'm a janitor. I'm sweeping the floors. It was, I'm putting a man on the moon. That's right. You know, they all own that mission. That's right. Absolutely. So it's awesome. So as we record this and, and still in the middle of the COVID pandemic in June, um, you know, a lot of leaders and organizations have been tested uh, and we're facing a lot of change and uncertainty right now. How should leaders think about and approach major change like this? Because it's not just business as usual. When crisis happens, major changes happen. People are working remotely for the first time. How do we approach that as leaders to be effective? Well, I think they have to really think about what is it they're delivering to the market. In other words, what I always think about it is, what is your covenant with your customers? And is that still the covenant they want? What do they want? And you may have to reimagine what it is that you deliver, but you've gotta, you're going to have to be an entrepreneurial leader. You're going to have to think entrepreneurially, and you may have to reimagine your mission. But then I think, very practically, you have to be decisive. You have to make decisions quickly. Uh, you have to change them if you've made the wrong decision. Uh, you have to be optimistic. People don't want somebody who's down. You have to imagine new ways of, of winning. And again, the first thing I said was, of course, you have to preserve cash. You have to survive. So I think your whole team needs to know we're inside the tent together. We are planning this thing together. We all own it. And we're going to do the tough things. I know at JetBlue, the board immediately cut its fees to zero said, we're not going to take any fees. And the management team came in and said, we're cutting our salaries in half. So everybody kind of rolls their sleeves up and says, okay, this is my contribution to this. So if everybody locks arms, you find that actually trust levels can go up. People can actually be energized by hard times. So I no longer fear adversity. I actually think adversity can make us stronger, better managers, clearer thinkers, more entrepreneurial, they're nothing we would ever choose, uh, and you many times wish that on your worst enemy, but they can be good for us. And so you have to imagine, how is this good for me? What can I learn from this? The final thing that I would say, Andy, is it's an opportunity to be kind. You know, people will remember forever how they felt going through this. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are really stressed out. They're really worried, and legitimately so. And I think an extra modicum of kindness Asking people how they are, taking an extra minute with, with folks, letting people inside your own thinking. That's a kind thing to do. Yeah. And it doesn't cost much to do that either. Empathy, so important during these challenging times. Joel, what would, be, what would you say has been your proudest moment or biggest success in your career? You know, you, you won't believe this one, but I actually think that I tend to love my students at Stanford. And so when I won the teaching award there, it's given by the students. Uh, I was really proud of that. So I've had a bunch of business successes that people would say, these are the things that are, you're going to be remembered for. But I would say that it's probably uh, my relationship with my students. 
Uh, that's fantastic. Love that. Flip side, what has been one of your biggest mistakes or failures in your career and what did you learn from it? <laughs> there are a lot of those to choose from, Andy. Uh, <laughs> well, as I an entrepreneur, as long as I have, you know, you make a lot of stumbles. I, I think uh, probably the worst ones that I've made have been when I've known something wasn't quite right and I've stuck with it. Often it's when there's somebody that I know that I need to move on and I just keep hoping that they'll get better or whatever. I just, and I've known it and I've actually taught it. And yet when it comes right down to it, yep. I dither. Yep. And uh, they always, it just gets worse and it's harder to do and it's a bigger mistake over time. Uh, I think I've made that mistake a couple of times. Yeah, I have as well. And it's, it's a tough one because yeah. you, know, you don't want to let people down, but you know, you got to make the right decision for them and for you. The book is called Entrepreneurial Leadership, The Art of Launching New Ventures, Inspiring Others, and Running Stuff. Really fantastic stuff, Joel. Last question for you. For everyone out there thinking about their own careers, trying to find a way to accelerate their careers, what's one more piece of advice you would give? You know, I would say that this is actually from the book, and I, and I think it's a powerful idea. Um, and that is, I, there are five fundamental ways that people are motivated. They can be forced to do something. They can be motivated by fear, out of fear. There's a lot of that going around. Yep. They can be motivated out of reward. A lot of people get bonused and rewarded, recognized, whatever. There's a sense of duty, which is a higher level of motivator. And then ultimately, it's love. And I think love is the most powerful motivator in the world. And when people feel cared for, you know, if we, and we need more of it in our world. We need it in our business world. We need it in our families. We need it dealing with young people. Uh, and I would just say to think about moving up the motivating thing from fear and, re fear and reward is where most of us live most of the time. If yeah. you can transfer that up to living based on duty and, and love, you're going to have a better life and you're going to make everyone else's life better. Love it. What a great piece of advice to go out on. Joel, thank you so much for spending time with me today and uh, sharing all of your wisdom from the book. Uh, I can't wait to read more and uh, share this with my audience. So thanks again for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure, Andy. Good to talk with you. Have a great right. day.